Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night and it is time for us to talk about science and skepticism. So if you have just been listening to Democracy Now!, uh, they had a special on about oxycodone and uh, basically opioid drugs and the really awful way in which they were pushed by pharmaceutical companies, uh, which is all true, very true. Um, One of the things that I often talk about is the fact that uh, medicine is generally uh, what I would consider Uh, Western medicine is trying to do its best most days, but the companies that uh, push drugs and things like that, they are absolutely in it for capitalistic reasons. And uh, there is a lot to talk about as far as bad business practices when it comes to uh, manufacturers of pharmaceuticals and all sorts of things involved in uh, the medical profession and in medicine itself. I just wanted to uh, touch on, because you might have read about it, uh, sort of following up with that, that uh, traces of opioids had been found in Seattle area muscles. Well, um, that is true, but, uh, and so that's in uh, Washington's Puget Sound, so in the Seattle area. And the thing is, is that Mussels are filter feeders, and Puget Sound is a large watershed. There's a lot of uh, wastewater that is put into the harbor, um, and so it turns out that a lot of traces of pharmaceuticals are found in those mussels. And so biologist Jennifer Lakensbury Uh, who led the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife Study, told NPR member station KUOW, Oxycodone is in the news right now, but there are a number of other pharmaceutical products that we found. Antibiotics, the antidepressants, chemotherapy drugs, heart medications that we're finding in muscles. And so uh, she also noted that they're found in juvenile Chinook salmon. And so... This is part of a larger problem. It's not just about opioids and opioid use, um, but it's about the fact that there are all of these contaminants from the drugs that we use that are being uh, put out into seawater. And so this is a problem that is kind of a continuing issue. So there's a lot of issues with the fact that the drugs that we ingest are not fully metabolized a lot of times, uh, and then they end up in the water, and there's no way for waste, for wastewater treatment plants to actually deal with that. Now, again, the amount found in the muscles is thousands of times lower than a therapeutic dose for humans, so it's not like anybody's going to get sick from uh, eating any of these muscles. Uh, but... It is a worry for fish in Puget Sound because, for instance, there have been lab studies that show that zebrafish uh, will willingly dose themselves with opioids. And so they're worried about the salmon in this area. Um, And obviously, there's also issues with chemotherapy drugs uh, that can be found. And so this is kind of a part of a larger issue. 
Uh, so if you were reading the headlines, it's sometimes, uh, some of the headlines were basically like, oh, this is what's wrong with, uh, you know, the opo, the opioids are so bad now that they're in muscles. And that is true, but, um, it's part of a larger, more complex and a, uh, sort of a problem that's been going on for some time now. Okay. So, uh, let us move on now. Uh, I just wanted to kind of pull that out because I had been listening, obviously, to the end of Democracy Now! And so there were a couple of stories that actually I didn't get to talk about last week that I did want to end up talking about. So, new research, research into the ancestors of modern birds suggests that they descended from a few lucky species of ground-dwelling quail-like birds that were able to survive the post-Chicxulub landscape of Earth. So, um, as you hopefully know by now, uh, modern birds are descended from small predatory dinosaurs like velociraptors, uh, which, contrary to Jurassic Park, uh, were closer to the size of turkeys rather than cassowaries, uh, but still vicious and terrifying, so have no fear. Um, they probably would still have hunted impacts and killed you dead. Um, so don't worry. Uh, at least they're still vicious murder birds. Um, uh, and so the first true avian dinosaurs appeared around 150 million years ago in the late Jurassic. Um, and so when the asteroid hit the Chicxul in Chicxulub, Mexico, three fourths of all species on Earth were basically wiped out. Uh, it was a huge extinction event. Uh, huge forest fires raged across the world. And for one thing, that would have been bad news for tree-dwelling avians. And so a team led by Daniel Field, a vertebrate paleontologist at the University of Bath in England, suggests that the fossil record supports a move from ground-dwelling birds back to tree-dwelling at a later date. After a disaster like a forest fire or a volcanic eruption, the first plants to come back are the fast colonizers, especially ferns, explains paleontologist Regan Dunn from the Field Museum in Chicago. Now, this would have likely favored ground-dwelling avians, which might have been able to fly, uh, but most likely chose not to. Uh, most likely they were sort of like today's chickens or quails or pheasants uh, that don't tend to do a lot of actual flying, even though technically they can. And so the researchers examined fossilized avian skeletons from before and after the impact and found that those that survived showed signs of ground dwelling, such as longer, sturdier legs. Now, of course, this is a huge event that took place and different things could have been happening in different parts of the world. And so there are some researchers who are a little bit skeptical. And so some researchers sus suspect, again, this is not the whole story. It's difficult to conclude all forests disappeared globally based on just evidence from northern areas, molecular evolutionist Alan Cooper, who was not involved in the study, told uh, the journal Science. In addition, the idea that one thing was responsible for all of the extinctions at the end of the Cretaceous is not a widely held view by anyone at this point. So it would make sense that multiple factors impacted which avian species survived the extinction event. Now, 
Field actually agrees with this, and his team has actually previously done work uh, showing that, for instance, smaller species fared better than larger, perhaps because they could subsist on a smaller diet and it was easier for them to forage in a post-apocalyptic landscape. Also, the forest fire theory would not explain why some ground-dwelling species, as well as some marine species uh, akin to today's cormorants or terns, also went extinct. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't make any sense to say that a forest fire killed a uh, tern, because a tern-like uh, bird probably never saw a forest. And so, again, as with all of the species that went extinct during this time period, more than one cause was clearly needed. So, for instance, with the dinosaurs in general, uh, you know, clearly the uh, Chicxulub uh, impact crater had a huge issue or had a huge impact on them, uh, no pun intended. But there were other things going on as well. There had already been a decline before it hit. And, um, you know, dinosaurs were very, very, very successful for a very long time, uh, much longer than humans have been uh, so far. But eventually they just lost the uh, the game of life, shall we say. And so talking about the impact of the asteroid, uh, there is new research on that in particular and how that might have affected the planet itself. And so beyond those initial wild wildfires and the huge tsunamis, uh, there is, uh, I think I reported last year or uh, maybe even two years ago now that uh, they eventually, um, they had sort of been wondering if they would and someone finally found evidence of a tsunami that was, the tsunami was so huge that it came through the entire inland sea in the middle of the country and there's actually evidence of tsunami debris that someone found i can't remember exactly where but in like north dakota or somewhere really really odd that you would not expect to find it except for the fact that it had clearly been from this major event so in addition to those a cloud of sulfur gas would have initially engulfed the planet which would have caused temperatures to plunge However, after that, billions of tons of carbon dioxide that had been released from said forest fires, for instance, into the atmosphere would have become a global warming trend that lasted some 100,000 years. And so this is according to new evidence from paleontologist Kevin McLeod of the University of Missouri at Columbia and his team, which looked at the ratio of heavier to lighter forms of oxygen in crushed remains of fish bones, teeth, and scales in order to estimate past temperatures. So basically the way that that works is that the ratio of heavier oxygen decreases, uh, decreased by about 1% in fish bits <laughs> analyzed from after the impact. And uh, so part of the reason that they say that they're looking at these tiny little bits of fish is that uh, a lot of the marine animals that they would normally use to estimate past temperatures didn't survive or weren't fossilized during this time period. So this is actually new research using these bits of fish that have been found in um, this outcropping. And so it's really interesting to use this to sort of look at that temperature differentiation. And so the decrease of about 1% after the impact 
is estimated to have translated to about a five degrees Celsius increase in temperature, which is a substantial amount of warming. Um, so, you know, we've been talking a lot in our current battle with climate change about two degrees Celsius and how that will have a humongous impact on the planet. And so imagine five degrees, uh, pretty big. Um, and so they've been looking at examples of samples that have come from the remains of a rock outcropping in what is now El Kef, Tunisia. And so they are hoping to find samples from other areas and compare them and see if uh, similarly they might be able to show this same rise in temperature, which would give a boost to the theory. And so uh, what they propose is that if there was that large temperature rise, this would have greatly impacted the ability of marine species to survive. And so it would show why there is such a die-off of marine species after the um, impact, because technically an impact like that doesn't necessarily uh, affect the oceans. There's a lot of deep ocean animals that would not really have any initial uh, impacts from the impact. Uh, they wouldn't initially have any kind of uh, trouble from that, but we do see a giant die-off in the oceans nonetheless. And so if there was this giant warming, then you end up with more um, acidic oceans, which makes it harder for shellfish to create their shells. And uh, so then the bottoms of the food web get disturbed. And as the bottom of the food web gets disturbed, it crawls up further and further up the uh food web and eventually you get a massive die-off so yeah um again global warming bad <laughs> that is pretty much the 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 uh reader's digest version of this which is that global warming is not a good thing and um we should do as much as we can to prevent it even though we clearly are not at the moment okay let's move on <laughs> and so there are two stories tonight about uh, stick insects, and I just thought it was really fun and interesting, um, so I wanted to talk about them. Uh, so uh, if you've never heard of them or seen one, uh, they're pretty much as advertised. They are insects that camouflage themselves to look like sticks, uh, or they don't camouflage themselves. They are camouflaged. Um, and so they even tend to have a sort of jerky motion to their movements, uh, which makes them look like they're swaying in the breeze to kind of look even more stick-like. And uh, so they can be quite big, and they're generally fairly slow-moving sedentary insects. Or uh, more precisely, they are insects with low mobility. So how does an insect like this manage to expand its territory? A new paper from researchers led by associate professor Kenji Suetsugu from Kobe University's Graduate School of Science, associate professor Katsuro Ito, um, or Ito excuse me, from Kochi University, and associate professor Takeshi Yokoyama um, 
from the Tokyo University of Agriculture and Technology have published a paper in the journal Ecology, which has a possible answer. And so the team realized that the way that plants are able to distribute their seeds might be applied to insect eggs. So one of the main ways that plants distribute their seeds is by having animals eat and subsequently excrete their seeds at a later time in a different location. So in order to achieve that feat, insects would need a couple of different things. The eggs would need to fulfill several criteria. They would need to be strong enough to survive passing through the digestive tract unharmed. The young would have to fend for themselves and the eggs would need to be able to be viable without first being fertilized. And it just so happens to turn out that stick insect eggs fit this bill perfectly. They have a hard exterior, uh, much like a seed. The eggs are generally fertilized just before being laid, but many species are parthenogenic, uh, which means that the females can produce viable offspring without fertilization. And the eggs are generally laid on the ground, and the hatchlings find food for themselves once born. So there isn't any kind of maternal, um, any kind of maternal uh, help that the uh, newborns are given. They're just kind of laid, and then the female either moves on or dies, depending. And so, in order to test their hypothesis, the team fed the eggs of three different species of stick insects to brown-eared bulbul. And so uh, those are one of their primary uh, bird predators. And they found that for all three of the species, some of the eggs survived between 5 and 20%. They found that for one of the species, eggs actually successfully hatched after having been retrieved from the bird's excrement. Now, because these insects are often eaten by birds, and because the females are always carrying eggs, the researchers conclude that this is a possible mechanism for dispersal of the insects. Our next step is analyzing the genetic structure of stick insects, says team leader Professor Tsutsugu. Based on this, we'd like to investigate whether similar genetic structures of stick insects can be found along birds' migration flight paths, and whether there are genetic similarities between stick insects and plants that rely on birds for seed distribution. So that would actually be really interesting uh, if there were genetic similarities between the stick insects and between plants. Um, that would be a really nice result to find out if that is true. And again, stick insects seem to be a rather popular research subject because there was a second uh, paper published just recently. And so, as I mentioned above, many species of stick insect are what is called, have a facultative parthogenic, are facultatively parthogenetic. Say that three times fast. <laughs> And this just basically means that they can reproduce either sexually or asexually. And so this other paper shows that for female stick insects, parthenogenesis leads to the longest lifespan. So uh, this is research by University of Auckland's Morgane Marion, who is a PhD student in biology. And she showed that females from the client Clitarchus hookeri uh, that reproduce without sex have the longest lives, 
while those that mate with the most males have the shortest lifespan. So Marion collected 80 males and 60 females and split them into three groups. One group was left without males. The second group was given only a single male partner, and the third group was given multiple partners. The females were all collected before they became adults in order to ensure that they had not had any prior sexual encounters. The research showed a direct correlation between the female's lifespan and the number of partners. Now, it wasn't all bad news for the polyandrous females, however, because they were more likely to produce viable offspring than the monogamous females, which makes sense because they had a better chance of finding a mate with superior genetics. We know there are a number of biological reasons why sex may be costly for female insects, including physical harm during mating, increased energy expenditure, and a higher risk of predation, um, Morgane said. But it's great to have some clear evidence on the link between sexual reproduction and lifespan. So now you probably know more about stick insects than you ever wanted. Um, apparently they make good pets. Uh, that is, I think, probably why one of the reasons why they're studied is because they probably are pretty easy to keep in a lab. Um, because that is unfortunately one of the things that a lot of people have to look at when they are doing lab uh, work is can you keep the animal alive in a laboratory setting? And apparently stick insects are pretty easy to keep alive and are pretty good subjects for doing things with. And they don't, you know, try and fly away or anything. They are very sedentary and very uh, sort of mild mannered. <laughs> so yeah. Okay. So let us now move on to some less fun topics, um, which I wanted to talk about because I think it's important, even though I do like to try and keep things as upbeat as possible. Um, but these things are very, very, very important. And I think it's, uh, unfortunately needs to be talked about. So, whew, this first one is just an upsetting story. Um, the California Medical Board is considering revoking the license of Dr. William Edwin Gray III. Why? Because apparently, Gray has been offering homeopathic sound files over the internet, which he claims can cure a variety of illnesses, like more traditional homeopathic remedies, but with even less evidence to support them, which is impressive considering how little evidence there is for traditional homeopathic remedies. And it would be one thing if he was saying that he could, con he could cure things like headaches or colds or even something like arthritis, but he actually claims that some of these can treat life-threatening illnesses, like, for instance, Ebola and malaria and typhoid and cholera. <sighs> he is, quite rightly, being accused of gross negligence by the board. Now, of course, since selling homeopathic nostrums does not actually require one to have any training whatsoever, Gray actually seems pretty unconcerned over whether or not the board will vote to strip him of his license. He basically said it would cost too much money to uh, defend himself, and he didn't think he'd win anyways, which is true. <laughs> At least he understands that. Um, yeah. 
So how does one sell sound waves that are supposed to cure? Gray claims that the sounds carry the energetic signal in homeopathic remedies that cure the disease. So apparently what he does is he prepares the files by placing homeopathic remedies, which again are basically either simply water or sugar pills, into electrified coils and then recording any sounds that emerge. From this quote-unquote method, he has produced 263 e-remedies, as he calls them, consisting of 13-second sound bites of basically hissing sounds. They sell for either $5 per recording, or you can subscribe to receive 25 of them for $100. Gray claims on his website that he has actually cured three patients of Ebola back in 2014. Of course, needless to say, he provides no real evidence for this. And in fact, his claims were so outrageous that even Robert Stewart, founder of the New York School of Homeopathy, told the New York Times, quote unquote, he's on his own in this. So yeah, uh, this makes me super angry uh, to think that anyone might have given this man money for a sound file instead of going to a trained medical doctor who could actually treat them. And as far as I can tell, the only motive for doing this is pure greed. It's making money off of desperate sick people without even having to leave the house. It's just, it's very upsetting. (laughs) Um, And unfortunately, it segues right into my next story, which is also upsetting. Um, But before we talk about that... Uh, So I can take a couple of deep breaths. We are going to take a break and do some PSAs and uh, some show promos. And I will be back in just a few minutes. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry.
you don't let your kids play in the toilet. That's what it's like when pet owners don't pick up pet waste. Irrigation and stormwater can carry this pollutant to storm drains and retention areas where our children play. Do the right thing. For yourself and your community, pick up after your pet. Bag it and properly dispose of it in the trash. Remember, only rain in the storm drain. Brought to you by Stormwater Outreach for regional municipalities. Visit storm at www.azstorm.org. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's, it's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. Hey, it's D.O. from The Environment Show, which is the Valley's only local radio show devoted solely to environmental issues right here on WXOJLP Valley Free Radio. That's right, and I'm Glenn reminding you that we're at 103.3 FM and streaming live at valleyfreeradio.org every Tuesday from 6 to 7 p.m. And not so live on Thursdays at 2. And since it's the end of the world as we know it, why not spend your last hour with us? Exactly. We'll help you cope with the end of the world without resorting to drugs or Facebook, even though we are on Facebook. And online at enviroshow.wordpress.org. Remember, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. and Thursdays at 2 p.m. Got it? Yes. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly. Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJLP, bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yusef Latif, Bix Biderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. iHeart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best in the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. All right, we are back. And... As I said, this next story is also kind of upsetting, uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I want to talk about it. So our previous story basically leads right into uh, this ridiculously awful right to try bill, quote unquote, right to try, that just passed and uh, was signed into law by um, the president. Make no mistake, the only reason for the passage of this bill was a direct push by people like Vice President Pence and the co-brothers, um, or the coach bro- Koch brothers, um, depending on how you pronounce it, uh, to weaken the foundations of the FDA. Now, what they are doing is they're hoping to turn back the clock on government oversight and move us back into a time where the FDA didn't have the ability to enforce that drugs brought to market are not only safe, but effective as well. And so, for instance, uh, the groundwork is already being laid by the conservative Goldwater Institute. Uh, One of the things they've already started doing is that they've started pushing for manufacturers to be able to share off-label uses with physicians in the name of quote-unquote free speech. 
And of course, there was never a need for a right to try law in the first place. These are just ridiculous grabs at corporate undermining of oversight. The FDA already has a compassionate use waiver available for terminally ill patients who want to try experimental drugs. The only reason for this law is to chip away at the very foundations of the FDA. Soon, conservatives and drug manufacturers will try to expand it not only to terminally ill patients, but also extremely ill patients, and so on and so forth. And, of course, in case you weren't aware, the Goldwater Institute is actually a part of ALEC, or the American Legislative Exchange Council, uh, which is a very innocuous name for a corporate-funded organization that basically creates corporate uh, legislation, which is then introduced by conservative legislators basically verbatim. Um, and so this legislation will basically make uh, people like Stanislaw Brzezinski as well uh, make his shtick completely legal. Um, and so it's not only a win for corporations, but it's also a win for people like Brzezinski, people like uh, the so-called doctor we talked about before, to be able to part people, uh, terminally ill people, from their money uh, without giving them anything in return. Uh, this is a man who has taken uh, Brzezinski. He takes money from uh, terminally ill cancer patients. And of course, it's not only just their money, but it's often the money of well-meeting supporters from uh, crowdfunding. So a lot of these people who go to Brzezinski's uh, quote-unquote clinic have done this through crowdfunding. And he has given them nothing in return. Um, his lateral protocol does not work. Uh, it hasn't worked ever. It has been uh, tried and has failed for years and years and years. Um, but of course, he gets around it by saying that, you know, it's experimental. And so this will allow people like him to continue to separate desperate people from their money and it will also give corporations and pharmaceutical manufacturers a way to chip away at the foundations of the FDA. So basically, it is terrible in all ways, shapes, and forms. <sighs> Never has the phrase elections have consequences been so valid than as in the last year or so. Ah. Uh, yeah. But even in these dire times, there are some silver linings. Uh, finally, after years of uh, unfounded controversy, uh, the FDA has approved golden rice. Now, to be clear, the controversy wasn't in the U.S. Uh, golden rice has been controversial for no apparent reason other than uh, scaremongering and fear tactics. Um, especially by organizations like Greenpeace, which um, I find particularly obnoxious because I would love to be able to support Greenpeace. Um, some of the things they do are great, but their objection to um, GMOs makes it very hard not to uh, dislike them. 
and uh, Greenpeace activists have actually uh, pulled up test uh, fields of golden rice, for instance, in the Philippines. And uh, let's not even begin to discuss their uh, publicity stunt slash um, horrible, horrible defacing of uh, the Nazca lines a couple of years ago, some of their activists. So not my favorite people, unfortunately, even though um, I definitely consider myself to be a um, environmentalist. I just can't get behind that sort of thing. But um, the they're finally sort of getting to the point where they're getting together um, approvals from first world nations. And so um, the American FDA has approved it and the crop had previously been given approvals by Australia, New Zealand and Canada uh, earlier this year. And so in a letter to the International Rice Research Institute, or the IRRI, the FDA stated that based on the information IRRI has presented to FDA, we have no further questions concerning human or animal food derived from GR2E rice at this time. Now, that is the sort of designation of golden rice is GRE2. And um, so that is very exciting. And basically what it is, is it contains genes that encode important parts of the carotenoid biosynthetic pathway. And so basically what that means is that it allows the rice to create beta carotene, which is a precursor to the production of vitamin A. And it's also what causes the rice to have that golden hue for which it is named. Now, golden rice, uh, if you have not heard of it, which you should have done, um, I've certainly talked about it many times and it's been in the news for years and years. Uh, it is meant to aid children in the developing world who suffer currently from vitamin A deficiency. And so this deficiency affects an estimated 250 million preschool age children around the world, and it can cause blindness and early death. Each regulatory application that Golden Rice completes with national regulatory agencies takes us one step closer to bringing Golden Rice to the people who need it most, said IRRI Director General, Director General Matthew Morrill. The rigorous safety standards observed by the US FDA and other agencies provide a model for decision making in all countries wishing to reap the benefit of Golden Rice. Now, of course, um, you're probably wondering why are, why are they starting in first world countries if it's meant for uh, developing countries? Well, the reason is that the IRRI has uh, submitted golden rice for approval in affluent countries uh, because they want to make sure that if rice is being exported from the countries that need it, uh, that any contamination that comes from rice producing countries where the crop is needed that there won't be any trade disruptions. And so, you know, if it's already approved in first world countries, if it turns out that a little bit of golden rice gets in with the regular rice, you know, if it hasn't been approved yet in those first world countries, it could be a huge issue. It could be a disruption of the trade. And that's the last thing that they want. Um, and so they are hoping to start having golden rice be cultivated in Bangladesh and the Philippines. And so they are working with um, rice collectives in those two countries, um, hoping to crossbreed uh, GR2E with local varieties uh, so that they can produce high yielding crops suitable to the specific growing areas. 
Now, um, one of the things that is pointed out and is absolutely true is that golden rice is not a cure. Uh, it is seen as an important nutritional supplement to the current interventions. Um, so for instance, diet diversification and uh, oral supplementation. It provides 30 to 50% of the vitamin A required by women and children. Now, the IRRI is also hoping to develop high iron and high zinc rice and versions with stacked micronutrients. So for instance, iron and uh, beta carotene or iron and zinc, etc. And so they're really hoping that this is going to help with nutrient deficiencies in the developing world where rice is basically the staple. Each component of IRRI's efforts to improve the nutritional content of rice responds to critical and enduring global, global nutritional security concerns, Morell asserts. So hopefully this is one step closer to golden rice finally being able to be consumed by people because it has been a long time uh, coming and it has had a very uh, fraught uh road to the fields, which have been, it has been unnecessarily fraught in my opinion. Um, but hopefully it is going to become a reality. Okay. So in other good news, researchers at Queen Mary University of London, uh, the School of Engineering and Material Science had developed a new way to grow mineralized materials. Now, this research could lead to the ability to regenerate hard tissue such as dental enamel and bone. Now, the need to develop solutions to uh, loss of tooth enamel has basically been a huge issue in dentistry. Um, it is kind of one of those holy grail kind of things that if we can figure out how to regrow tooth enamel, amazing things will happen. Um, because, of course, uh, while most body tissues can be regenerated, tooth enamel cannot be regrown once it has been lost. And so, of course, this leads to pain and tooth loss, which affects some 50% of the world's population. Uh, the paper published in Nature Communications describes how materials with the requisite amount of precision and order can be created in order to mimic enamel. And so... Enamel actually gets its remarkable strength from the fact that the minerals are highly organized in structure. So it's that kind of precision that needs to be recreated. The researchers suggest that the material could be used not only for the prevention and treatment of tooth decay, but also for tooth sensitivity, which is also referred to as dentin hypersensitivity. And so uh, Dr. Sharif L. Shakarwe, a dentist and principal author, noted that this is exciting because the simplicity and versatility of the mineralization platform opens up opportunities to treat and regenerate dental tissues. For example, we could develop acid-resistant bandages that can infiltrate, mineralize, and shield exposed dentinal tubules of human teeth for the treatment of dentin hypersensitivity. Basically, what that means in uh, slightly more plain speak is that they could actually give you... Uh, covers for those sensitive roots that scream out when you um, end up drinking something or eating something uh, with acid or that's too cold or too hot and makes those uh, roots 
scream. Um, and as someone with recessive gum issues um, and who also enjoys lime flavored water, uh, much to the chagrin of her dentist, uh, this is exciting to me personally. Uh, so the material was created by using a specific protein mineral, uh, protein material, I should say, which is able to trigger and guide the growth of apatite nanocrystals at different scales in a way that mimics that of normal enamel development. And so, as noted, the crystalline structure is essential for obtaining the strength shown in natural dental enamel. Lead author Professor Alvaro Mata said, a major goal in material science is to learn from nature to develop useful materials based on the precise control of molecular building blocks. The key discovery has been the possibility to exploit disordered proteins to control and guide the process of mineralization at multiple scales. Through this, we have developed a technique to easily grow synthetic materials that emulate such hierarchically organized architecture over large areas and with the capacity to tune their properties. <laughs> and so basically, um, the ability to control the mineralization process also opens up the ability, the possibility of using the technique on other body materials, such as bone and dentin. And this really could eventually lead to breakthroughs in other areas of regener regenerative medicine. <sighs> uh, and so um, the other teams are actually working on ways to stimulate enamel to regrow itself. Uh, and I think I've talked about that at some point in the near uh, past. I remember uh, certainly reading about it, so I hope that I shared it with you. And so hopefully in the not too distant future, dentistry will become a lot more advanced and a lot less painful overall. Okay. So, um, let's talk now about a new study about how we talk to dogs. Um, and so a new study in the journal Animal Cognition, which is one of my favorite journals, um, cause you know, I am a science dork, um, suggests that talking to your dog in exact, in an exaggerated way, uh, the way that many pet owners do really does appeal to our canine companions. So if you're someone who, you know, likes to, uh, talk in a high-pitched, exaggerated voice to your dog, it's okay. Uh, the researchers asked two people to sit with speakers in their laps that played their own voices. Um, and so one of the things that they, they, they note is uh, the reason for this is that dogs, we think, are very sensitive to changes in acoustic properties, things like the gender of the person, size of the person. So that's why the recording of the speech always matches the person that was holding the speaker, says co-author Alex Benjamin, a PhD candidate at the UK's University of York. And so uh, they wanted to make sure that that didn't sort of skew the uh, experiment. And so 37 dogs from York, England were recruited for the experiment. Each dog was leashed and brought into a room where two people were sitting. They were presented with recorded speech of a normal tone and a more dog directed speech, uh, which again is sort of like a dog version of baby talk. Uh, and that included words that the dogs should pick up on like treat and walk. They then measured the length of time the dog spent looking at each person and how much time they spent with each person after being let off of the lead. The dog spent more time looking toward the person using dog-directed speech, says Benjamin, 
And they chose on average to spend more time with the person who had recently been producing this sort of speech register. So again, it looks like that sing-song voice we tend to use really does appeal to them. Now, in order to further test if it was the words used in the speech, um, if that made some sort of difference to the dogs, they were given recordings of someone saying phrases like, I went to the cinema last night, but in a dog voice. So like, I went to the, the cinema last night. I can't really do it without a dog <laughs> here, <laughs> but you know, um, or, oh, you're such a good dog. Do you want to go for a walk in a monotone voice? And so they showed no preference for either of these com com combinations, which suggests that it is both the words spoken and the way they're spoken that made the difference. Perhaps dogs use the intonation to initially tend to the speech and then recognize whether the words you are using are related to them or not, says Benjamin. Obviously, further research will be needed uh, and also to see if this is a natural or a learned behavior. It could be that they respond more to this type of speech when you use it with them as a puppy, so they almost train you to keep using this kind of speech, she says. Now, this is the part that I found to be really interesting. The speech we use with dogs while affected is not the same as baby talk. When talking to dogs, we don't exaggerate our vowels the way that we do with babies. However, it turns out that parrot owners usually do talk to their birds with the equivalent of baby talk. And of course, some parrots can talk. They can um, either mimic or, depending on uh, the bird, can potentially actually talk. And so this suggests that we know whether or not the animal needs to be able to learn speech. So this suggests that we are sensitive to the linguistic ability of the animal or person we are talking to, uh, noted Benjamin, and it's largely unconscious. People don't realize they are doing anything different. So I just thought that was really neat that um, we both uh, can talk to dogs, but we do it slightly differently because we know that they don't need to learn uh, English, even though it would be really great if my cats could learn some English or the puppies um, that I am around on a fairly regular basis. It would be so much easier if animals just spoke English, but uh, unfortunately, uh, we don't live in that universe. Um, but anyways, okay. Let us wrap up tonight with a sort of a weird story, um, but it's definitely, I had seen it one place and then as I was sort of looking through things this afternoon, I saw it a couple of other places, so I decided I should probably talk about it. Um, and so it uh, it has to do with the Fermi par paradox. Um, so it is a report on a theoretical physicist, Alexander Berezin, uh, who is at the National Research University of Electronic Technology in Russia. Uh, and basically, he has proposed a new answer to Fermi's paradox. Now, um, if you're unfamiliar, Fermi's paradox is the idea that despite the fact that there are millions of stars with billions of planets, um, or billions of stars with trillions of planets, whichever you want to think about, um, we have yet to find any real evidence that there is any life outside of Earth. 
Now, there have been plenty of previous explanations uh, for why this might be. Uh, the one I tend to favor, the ones I tend to favor, are that a sufficiently advanced civilization capable of space travel just wouldn't have any interest in humanity. Um, and so that's the one that I tend to favor. Uh, and so one of the things that I have noticed when I watch uh, sort of alien uh, conspiracy shows and even ancient aliens uh, talks about this is that basically they have noted that the amount of sightings of um, UFOs that ha were noticed after the first atomic bombs went off, uh, that it went up significantly. Of course, my explanation for that is the fact that this was the Cold War and people were really freaking out about what was going on in the world and they were looking at the sky a lot more. So they saw a lot more weird things that weren't aliens, but were just weird things that they had never noticed before. Um, but there seems to be this idea that having had the atomic bomb go off on the planet would have been a sign to uh, aliens. But what they really don't understand is that with the vastness of space, the amount of energy released by an atomic bomb is actually tiny. Uh, too many episodes of Star Trek and our human understanding of the energy involved in atomic explosions have made us think that this might be a signifier to other beings that were worthy of being observed. However, it isn't. I, tr I promise you, the amount of energy being put out in an in a minute by the sun is so much more than what would have been uh, put out by those first atomic bombs that it wouldn't even have registered uh, outside of the earth. To us, it's amazing and huge and terrifying and, and truly, truly horrifying. But from a energy perspective in the universe, it's nothing, absolutely nothing. Uh, and of course, even our most distant space probes have barely left the solar system. We are truly but babes in the wood when it comes to this. So, getting back to Berezin, he states, What if the first life that reaches interstellar travel capability necessarily eradicates all competition to fuel its own expansion? And so this is from his new paper, which has been posted to the preprint journal archive.org, which is where all of these uh, physics papers go before they are uh, fully peer reviewed. And uh, so basically, it's a twist on my suggestion, which is that any civilization capable of interstellar travel would be by def definition one that was harvesting and harnessing huge amounts of energy and resources. Therefore, it's easy to assume that they would see lesser forms of life as mere blips in the fabric of space-time. However, he puts a different spin on it even. He says, I'm not suggesting that a highly developed civilization would consciously wipe out other life forms. Uh, most likely, they simply won't notice the same way a construction crew dem demolishes an anthill to build real estate because they lacked incentive to protect it. And, of course, the real kicker is that Berezin suspects that we might actually be the winners of the celestial lottery, so to speak. 
We are the first to arrive at the interstellar stage. I might argue that still. Uh, Berezin speculated, and most likely we will be the last to leave. I certainly hope I am wrong. The only way to find out is to continue exploring the universe and searching for alien life. And of course, if it is true that we are the first to achieve interstellar travel, I would tend to agree with Berezin that we will demolish any other life that might be out there, uh, because humans are really good at that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, anyways, <laughs> that's all the time we have for tonight. Uh, please do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.